This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Good morning. It's Monday. It's the 14th of March. I'm Tabitha McIntosh in the breakfast slot, and today I'm talking about teachers caught up in history, teachers in war zones, in natural disasters, in terrorist attacks, teachers running lessons in bunkers, and writing notes on the Titanic, teachers in impossible places and times. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and this is The Breakfast Show. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Tune in live at ttradio.org, or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. Good morning again. For those of you who missed the intro, today I've got a show with some difficult listening um, and some inspiring listening. Uh, We're talking about teachers caught in impossible situations, teachers who plan to teach history but find themselves becoming history instead. So I started from the most iconic picture that came out from the early stages of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Um, And I'm going to be reading today largely from collages of reportage. So I'm looking at how teachers have become history and how they will go down in history, how the sources have treated them. Um, Elena Carrillo, 52-year-old teacher, became the face of the Russian invasion in the last week of February. On the morning of Friday, 25th of February, her pale green eyes stared out at the world. The 52-year-old teacher's head was wrapped in a tattered bandage, her hair, nose, cheeks and lips encrusted in blood. The haunting image, which was splashed across the front of newspapers around the globe, was taken on the day that Putin's Russian army invaded Ukraine. Kirillo was hurt in a Russian airstrike that battered the eastern city of Chuhuiv, her home completely destroyed. And she was the first person that photographer Wolfgang Schwan, an American from Philadelphia, saw when he arrived on the scene. Uh, he said a missile had left a crater six, me- six meters wide. We went over to it and that's when we saw her. She was walking with her arms out, very disoriented. I'm I'm sure she was concussed. We photographed her while asking for her name. One colleague was punching in on Google Translate, trying to talk to her. Um, When it then got covered, and it was covered everywhere, the the way it was covered was like this. Um, A Ukrainian teacher covered in blood after surviving a missile strike has today vowed to do everything for my motherland as Russian forces bombarded the country. The picture of Elena Carrillo heavily bandaged over her face and head has become one of the most striking pictures of the conflict so far. The 52-year-old's home was ravaged in a bombardment as Putin's forces shelled cities and made their way through Ukraine. Ms. Carrillo, speaking outside her smashed home after visiting the hospital, said that she was very lucky and must have a guardian angel. She added that she never thought this would truly happen in my lifetime and said, I will do everything for Ukraine as much as I can with as much energy as I have. I will always only be on my motherland's side. Um, There was an enormous blowback from Russian social media and um, some Russian propaganda about her so that the photographer who felt responsible for making her the face of the Russian invasion has been in contact with her daughter who tells us that her mother's now stable after having surgery but has to lay low after a huge Russian backlash because she's been accused of faking the photography um, Carrillo has been accused of being an actor. We see that happen again and again with such things. But I'm going to end her story as it currently stands 
with this line of hers. I myself am a director, an educator. We studied the history, but we never thought this would happen on our land. So she didn't think she would be history. None of us plan for that when we begin initial teacher training. But teachers all over the world find themselves doing their jobs in impossible circumstances, and that's who we're looking at today. The bombing campaign in Ukraine is a repeat of the technique that Russian-backed government forces used in Syria. And like Olena Carrillo, teachers there have had to adapt to becoming history, even while they try and teach it. So I'm going to take us back to 2016 and some of the coverage there of teachers. And we're going to listen to some teachers and students talk about their, their time in the classroom and how they're having to learn. Um, on the 26th of October 2016, Airstrikes hit a, a school complex in the small rural town of Al-Has in Idlib province in northwest Syria, and the effect was deadly. 35 people were killed in the attack, including 22 children. So Syria in Aleppo in 2016, deliberate bombing campaign of schools and hum like all human services infrastructure, just as we see happening now in Kharkiv and other places, Mariupol, around Ukraine. Um, and we were hearing from a teacher who's teaching in basements. They spread the children out because they want to avoid a situation where all the children die at once. That is how they're having to think about teaching and organizing classes. So without further ado, I'm going to play you a little bit of um, teachers and parents and children talking about what it means to go to school in those circumstances. 13-year-old Nidal El Aboud has breakfast with his father before going to school. He's one of an estimated 100,000 children trapped in eastern Aleppo. Government forces surround the area. Airstrikes have been intense over recent days. Nidal's dad worries his son may one day not return from class. As a father, I'm happy when I see children going to school. But because of the bombing, I often feel that I'm sending my child to his death. It takes Nidal five minutes to walk to his classes. This is where he used to study. The school is one of thousands across Syria that have been destroyed since the war began five and a half years ago. Nidal sits with his friend before classes begin. If you haven't done your homework, he says, you'll be in trouble. This is where the boys have to study these days. The converted cellar is poorly lit and cramped. Nidal says he wants to be a teacher when he grows up. I'm scared because of the warplanes targeting us with airstrikes. My friend was killed in my neighborhood. We used to play together. A helicopter dropped a barrel bomb on his house and he died. The boys don't go outside to play at break time. Airstrikes are more frequent now since the government's recent offensive began. The school that we were in was destroyed, but there were no casualties, thank God. But it's very difficult for the students to recover from the fear and panic of the bombing. The attacks have had a big psychological effect on them. They get very tired easily and it's hard to keep their attention. The organization Save the Children says school enrollment across Syria before the war was 100%. It says it's dropped to around 6% in the worst affected areas, like Aleppo. And that was before the government launched its offensive to take back control of the opposition held east of the city. Airstrikes have killed hundreds of people, including many children in recent days. There's mounting fear over a ground operation by pro-government troops. 
The right to learn about a world without war has been taken away from Nadal, his friends, and countless other children in Syria like them. Charles Stratford, Al Jazeera, Gaziantep. So there we have children and parents going to school, parents taking their children to school, and teachers not knowing whether they'll live through the day, having to organize distribution of children so that they and their colleagues won't all be killed at once in the event of a strike, not allowing playing outside. Um, here's a story about uh, teachers finding ways around impossible circumstances from thousands of miles distance. So in Afghanistan, obviously since um, last year with the Taliban takeover, girls and young women have been instructed to stay home from school. So um, the BBC ran a beautiful article about um, a British member of the Afghanistan diaspora uh, called Angela Gale, who runs an online school that now has nearly a thousand students and more than 400 volunteer teachers. So she was um, eight when the civil war started in Afghanistan in 92. They left for Iran and then eventually ended up in the United Kingdom. She now lives in Brighton. Um, and they ran these informal, like, education must go on. Teachers believe, children believe, parents believe that education must go on in impossible circumstances. So even as they were refugees moving between countries, um, every day after school, Angela tells us she'd return home and teach other 14 other Afghan children, all of them unable to go to school. Uh, and so she was used to running these made up on the hoof classes that, that put the importance of education at the absolute center. Um, and then now she's qualified as a secondary teacher. She lives in the Netherlands. She lives now in the UK and she runs the online Herat school. So they have nearly 400 volunteers. They teach via Telegram or Skype. They offer more than 170 different online classes. And as she said, I feel this school is the result of all my pain, my agonies, and my experiences. So there we have teaching in a war zone, an active war zone, and then teaching in response to a war zone or impossible circumstances. Um, I'm going to turn now in my coverage to teachers in the USA who've been subject to a peculiarly American form of war zone teaching, school shootings. Um, while there have been school shootings and atrocities since there have been schools, the one that really cemented that into American culture happened on April 12th, 1999, where two perpetrators, um, year 12 students, no, year 11 students, Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold murdered 12 students and one teacher at Columbine High School. The most recent incredibly high profile one with the highest death toll in American history was at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Florida, um, where on the morning of February 14th, 2018, 19-year-old Nicholas Cruz opened fire on students and staff at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School, he murdered 17 people. The teachers who died there were geography teacher, Scott Beagle, who was killed after he unlocked a classroom for students to enter and hide. Aaron Feiss, an assistant football coach and security guard who was killed shielding two children. And Chris Hickson, the school's athletic director, who was killed as he ran towards the sound of the gunfire and tried to help fleeing students. Um, for the last five years or so, we've done these intruder alert, what to do in the event of a gunman type drills in, in my school, I'm sure in schools around the country. We're, we all know what to do now. We have alarms set up on sims. But still, I always wonder, I have no idea what I would do. 
I have no idea if I would run towards the gunfire. I have no idea if I would be as impossibly brave as these teachers were. Um, and let's hear from an English teacher who lived in such impossible circumstances. The, the volume of what happened that day is always going to... Sorry, wrong clip. Um, I'm going to play Gail Glenn News and then we'll come back to that one. This episode of Teachers Talk Radio has been made possible with support from Witherslack Group, the UK's leading provider of SEN education and care. They're here to support you too through an ever-growing offer of free resources including webinars, podcasts, articles and events aimed at supporting teaching professionals like you. Visit their website at www.weatherslackgroup.co.uk to find out more. Are you looking to take your phonics practice forward? Then Little Wondle Letters and Sounds Revised is the programme for you. Created by two schools with an excellent track record in phonics, Little Wondle Letters and Sounds Revised will help all children become readers and ensure no child is left behind. The programme offers complete support for your phonics teaching, alongside classroom resources and fully decodable readers from Collins Big Cat. To find out more, follow at Letters Sounds on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram or join a free briefing by visiting littlewondelettersandsounds.org.uk Introducing Bulb. With evidence-based learning at the forefront of education, let Bulb digital portfolios help reshape your educational practice. Bulb helps teachers teach and learners learn. Bulb is an easy-to-use, fully accessible digital platform that captures students' digital learning assets in one place, allowing them to evidence their learning and reflect on their growth. Our dedicated team of education specialists are on hand to ensure the bulb fits seamlessly into all of your teaching practices. Come take a look and get a free account at bulbapp.com. If you're listening to this, then we know we share one thing in common. A passion for the type of outstanding education that every child deserves. That's what makes us the leading provider of specialist education and care. We need people like you to help us achieve even more. With us... You'll be given all the resources and support you need, offered a clear path to career progression, and be rewarded with some of the best salaries and benefits the industry has to offer. We are with a Slack Group. If you'd like to find out more, we'd love to hear from you. Visit www.withaslackgroup.co.uk forward slash careers and be part of our future. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and this is Teachers Talk Radio News with Gail Glenn. In Wales, as a response to the cost of living crisis, fuel and energy prices soaring, and the imminent UK government tax rises, a £13 million package to help families pay for school uniforms and PE kits is to be announced. Families who are eligible for help through the PDG Access Grant will be provided with a one-off £100 top-up payment in 2022-23 to help with the costs of sending their children to school. The Pupil Development Grant is to be extended to learners in all school years, 
who are eligible for free school meals. The PDG Access Grant is £125 per learner and rises to £200 for those learners entering Year 7. Education Minister Jeremy Miles said, In the midst of this Tory cost of living crisis, household budgets are under significant pressure and many parents will be worried about how they can afford the things their children need for school. Those families in receipt of the PDG Access Grant will already be using the £200 to help pay for their children's school uniform. This extra payment will help cover the other costs, such as PE kits, school shoes and other equipment, helping household budgets to go a little bit further. I'm pleased we can provide a bit more help to families at this difficult time and remove some of the financial barriers to education. In anticipation of the arrival of 100,000 refugee children arriving in Britain from Ukraine, England's Education Secretary, Nadim Sahawi, has announced that the auto-translate software is being rolled out on online learning hub Oak National Academy to help pupils who speak Russian or Ukrainian. Speaking at the Association of School and College Leaders annual conference in Birmingham on Friday, Mr Sahawi said, We will continue to support Ukrainians in any way we can. I know schools are doing what they can to support and make sense of what they are seeing. And we are working with schools to ensure that the tens of thousands of Ukrainian children we will welcome to our shores will have a place in our education system. To support schools' efforts, I'm delighted to announce that Oak National Academy has today rolled out an auto-translate function across all 10,000 of its online lessons. This will allow Ukrainian children arriving in the UK to access education in their native language as they transition into life and safety in the UK. This has been your latest Teachers Talk Radio News with Gail Glenn. This is Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Hello, this week I'm going to look at fake news and scammers. We all know what a scammer is, but do we really know what fake news is? The NSPCC website explains fake news in an easy to understand way if you want to look a little deeper. However, basically it's disinformation as opposed to misinformation. Misinformation shared without knowledge or intent to harm. Disinformation is shared intentionally. Fake news is nothing new, but for most it's seen as a propaganda or a political tools to influence opinion. However, it's becoming more popular with scammers. I decided to see what happens when you actually follow a fake news advert. I've noticed recently popular social media apps and search engine adverts encouraging investment in cryptocurrency. One ad caught my eye as I was looking at the news headlines on a popular browser. It read, Elon Musk invests 12 million in a new trading platform. I trusted the search engine, so I clicked on the link. Because let's face it, anything Elon invests in is worth looking at. I was taken to a website showing how the company Bitcoin Motion had created an investment robot that invests 
when Bitcoin climbs and sells when Bitcoin falls. Because Bitcoin is a massively volatile currency, you can earn a large profit in a very short time. It sounds almost too good to be true. On the site, there's a report where Elon himself tells a popular American news presenter to invest $250 and within eight minutes, she's made a profit of $100. Scrolling down, there were testimonials from Dragon's Den, Money Supermarket and other well-known established names. Next, a button to fill in a simple web form to sign up. I spent some time researching Bitcoin Motion. It was clearly fake. All endorsers had published statements saying they were nothing to do with it. So, I signed up. Within 30 seconds, I had a phone call from another company called FinoFX. Strangely though, there was a distinctive call transfer noise. A silence before the connection. Why, if they phoned me? Hello? Hello? Hi, Dave. Are you speaking to Mr. Steve? Steve what? That's me. Steve, you're speaking to... And I was called Mr. Steve. I should have hung up. Anyway, I was then time pressured so I didn't miss out to give the big long number across my credit card, which I didn't do. So I was sent a WhatsApp message with a secure payment link. Again, I was pushed to open it on my cell phone and pay. I made my excuses and ended the call. A further five messages and calls, some from London, some from Sheffield, came, never leaving a message. The WhatsApp saying, I see you've not made your transaction. I'm calling to assist you. The recording I have is my final call with the supposed investment company on the 20th of march at 8pm on tom rogers show we're going to listen to this and discuss the topic why not join us i'm going to leave you with a final thought i was told to look at the website and see there was a padlock showing it was safe the padlock and certificate is proof your connection is encrypted it's not proof of how trustworthy the person on the other end is anyone can buy an ssl certificate please be careful as always don't forget to check out the tt radio 2022 twitter feed i'm steve woods and that was two minute tech two minute tech with steve woods your tech briefing on teachers talk radio hi again you're back with the breakfast show with tabitha mcintosh today i've got a show with some um both inspirational but rather heavy going and uh quite upsetting um information and clips one of which i'm going to play next it's an english teacher who survived the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas um, gun attack by Nicholas Cruz in 2018. And this is her account of um, being in the classroom and what she did in those circumstances. As I was saying before the ad break, I am haunted by not knowing what I'd do. I hope I'd be one of those teachers who, who run towards the gunfire, who cover the children, who save their lives, but no one can know what they would do in such circumstances as this teacher says. Let's listen to her. There are three more funerals planned here in South Florida today. This as more than 100 students are getting on buses to go to the state capitol to lobby lawmakers on the state's gun laws. Meantime, we are hearing for the first time from some of those who survived this carnage, a warning. Uh, this is emotional and maybe difficult to listen to. Nicholas Cruz in court Monday, the confessed school shooter never looking up, charged with 17 counts of first-degree murder after the rampage of Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School. Prosecutors now saying it's too early to talk about any kind of plea deal. I just prepared to die. It comes as those caught in the gunfire are sharing their stories for the first time. English teacher Dara Haas was in the first classroom targeted by Cruz. So at first you thought this was just the drill? I thought it might be the drill and I, I went to shut the blinds and then I turned to say, turn the lights off. And when I turned, I saw my student. I saw him and he was, <laughs> he 
He was bleeding. 14-year-old Alex Schachter had been shot. And my students, they they were so brave. Haas grabbed her cell phone. And I called 911 and they asked if I could help. I could get to my student that was injured and I couldn't get over to him. And then 911 said, he's coming back. Because he already shot my room twice. Wasn't that enough? But no, he's coming back. And I figured if I have to go, I'm going to hug my students closer. And I kissed my students on their head and, you know, tried to comfort them. Schachter and two more students, 14-year-old Alina Petty and 14-year-old Alyssa Al-Hadef, were killed in her classroom. And as that poor teacher and her students show, um, teachers have been at the heart of violent events over and over and over again, um, and sometimes not as teachers, sometimes as witnesses, sometimes as victims. Um, teachers died in the 9-11 attacks in the United States. James Debonair, a teacher at Ketchum Elementary School in Washington, D.C., was on American Airlines Flight 77 when it was hijacked and crashed into the Pentagon. Um, British teachers died in the Boxing Day tsunami. A memorial service was held for a Bolton teacher, for example, killed in Thailand in the Asian tidal wave. Um, in a service attended more than five people. So, within school teacher Susan Ford was... Um, head of modern languages at bright met school 55 years old and was on holiday with her family and they were reported missing uh krista mccauliffe is one who if like me you are american as well as british uh if like me you were born in the early 70s is seared into your memory in a way that the assassination of jfk is for a previous generation uh, Krista McAuliffe in 1985 was selected from more than 11,000 applicants to the NASA Teacher Space Project, and she was scheduled to become the first teacher to fly in space. As a member of the mission, she was planning to conduct experiments and teach two lessons from Challenger. Um, my ex-husband, my former sister-in-law, every American I know my age, was watching it in class or was called into the gym to watch it collectively. It was a huge moment for teachers and, and schools and school children across America. And on January 28th, 1986, the shuttle broke apart one minute and 13 seconds after launch, killing everyone on board. Um, here's Krista McAuliffe before she went talking about being a teacher in such circumstances. Congratulations. Thank you very much, Brian. Simple question. Why you? <laughs> it, it's really hard to say. There were 10 people. We were such a cohesive group, enthusiastic, really enjoying teaching. And I think any one of us would have done a, a really good job. I don't know what put me over the top, but I'm delighted to be here. When you first applied for this, did you think you had even a prayer? I really didn't. I was almost doing it kind of like when you play the lottery. Uh -huh. If you don't play it, you don't win. Sure. And when I filled out that application, that's really how I felt. I figured there'd be at least 50,000 people across the country who would be slipping that into the mailbox <laughs> around the same time. What about when you made it down to the last 10? Did you think then... Maybe. Well, then the possibility became very real, and I really started to think what the impact would be on my teaching career and on my family, mm. but it was still really exciting. Has it all hit you yet? No, no, I don't think so. I still can't believe that I'm going to actually be going into that shuttle. Some teachers get caught up in events and become heroes without meaning to. Um, one such teacher, art and design teacher, Tim Colson, 
um, has become known as one of the angels of Edgware Road after the 7-7 attacks. Um, he, like so many others, on the 7th of July 2005, did not realise how dramatically his life was about to change when he boarded the tube. He wasn't used to London. He didn't go there very often. He had no idea how crowded it was going to be. Didn't realise it would be packed with commuters at 830 and still vividly recalls that. He was, of course, caught up in the coordinated series of bombings which shook the capital that day, killing 52 civilians and the four men who set the bombs off, injuring 700 more. The blast went off in three tunnels near the Aldgate, Edgware Road and Russell Square stations within 50 seconds of each other from 8.49am, followed by another explosion which ripped a double-decker bus in two in Tavistock Square an hour later. Within a minute or so of boarding, Colson's eastbound train passed the one on which the bomber, Khan, was riding west. He remembers an enormous boom and a bright light, the result of a powerful blast from homemade organic peroxide device. So he's since been given, um, awarded an MBE for services to the nation. He reads the names of those who were killed every year on the anniversary. And as this BBC article with him um, says, he was faced with a choice. Should he head to the surface with his fellow passengers or stay behind to help the dying and injured? Like the teachers at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High, he ran towards the gunfire, as it were. He stayed and helped. And another piece of audio, this is an interview with him. Again, some difficult listening, talking about how he was thinking, what his experiences were, how this art and design teacher found himself in circumstances that forced him to make impossible choices. The, the volume of what happened that day is always going to be difficult to talk about, but I think also very necessary. And I wouldn't have known on that day how long it would take to put me back together. Um, finding this five years ago, uh, an opportunity to volunteer on the River Thames, a place I knew well, um, that I could give something back to society the, the life change, if you like, started when we entered the tunnel. There was an enormous explosion in volume terms, very painful in the ears. A lot of people actually temporarily lost hearing. Thinking back to what I actually did immediately was the very most obvious to see, to check physically. I couldn't see, it was absolutely pitch black at that time that I'd got arms and legs but became aware fairly immediately of the sounds of people screaming uh, possibly in pain, not anything we could see at that point. The three of us, were totally unknown to one another, moved towards the rear of our train to see if we could get out and try and help those people. Diagonally to my right was a completely charred corpse. I've never seen one before. The severity of that drove me to look away from that corpse to a person directly opposite me who had no clothes on the top of their body, was half in and half out of the what would have been the floor of the carriage. He seemed very weak, pretty obviously for the damage that had been caused to him, which I hadn't in initially seen. And uh, very swiftly, the man I now know to be Stan uh, died in my arms. His eyes were still open and I, I deliberately closed them because I felt he shouldn't be looking, he'd finished with this world, he shouldn't be looking at it anymore and it was as a mark of respect uh, and also because my background as a Christian is that uh, I said a prayer for him and I felt I'd failed somewhat, why hadn't I kept this chap alive 
I went under the train to find out what what happened to him and found that in fact his body had been severed in half so there was no chance for Stan and no great suffering for him. The anxiety that led in my terms was colossal really but I was fortunate and it might sound a strange adjective but the fortunate aspect for me was that I heard a female voice behind my left shoulder screaming and that initially said you've got no time to think about yourself there's somebody else who needs help. I told her who I was, she explained who she was, and we held hands. Uh, and she said, please don't leave me. Um, I still find that moment somewhat challenging. Because although I told her that I wouldn't, and I, I didn't, I actually hoped that I could stay to make her life more comfortable. And uh, her injuries were such that she didn't die. She was very uncomfortable. We spent a long time underground, an hour and a half, before an emergency services uh, appeared to help. I, I'd like to say if it happened, I'd do it again, but I don't know that I would, just as I didn't know that I was going to do that on that day. And arguably, yes, I would have been um, a different person. I still feel in, in general terms. I don't think I would have done or could have done anything different. That's who I am. So like like the English teacher and her choices, like the teachers who ran towards the gunfire and their choices, he found himself in a situation where he had to make choices, which takes us to um, possibly the most devastating and famous disaster in, in British school history, which was the Aberfan disaster uh, on the 21st of October 1966. Catastrophic collapse of a colliery spoil tip, which had been created on a mountain slope above the Welsh village of Aberfan near Merthyr Tydfil, overlaid on a natural spring. A period of heavy rain led to a buildup of water um, within the tip, which caused it to suddenly slide downhill as a slurry, where it came across a school, Pankglass Junior School, and killed 116 teachers and 28 adults. Um, what I've got here is an interview from 2006 with a teacher who was there, one of the teachers who survived. 116 children died that day and five teachers died. And Rennie Williams, who died in 2020, um, now in age 73 during this interview in 2006, um, was talking about her experience of it. Situations like bombings in Syria, like bombs going off in trains under Edgware Road, like uh, gunmen walking into your classroom and beginning to shoot your students where you have no choice, you just have to survive and look after your class. So, so Rennie Williams, 73, teaching on that school that day, and she says, my room was night ne right next to the hall. We were just taking register and carrying on as normal. And then I heard a terrible noise that I thought must be the caretaker moving furniture around in the hall. And of course it wasn't. Some of my children were injured by bricks and debris because they were in the hall paying their dinner money, but we managed to bring them out of the school safely and onto the playground. Even after we got the children to safety and sent them home, we had to stay. The doctors asked us to help. Her friend Hetty Williams, 63, taught Standard One, a class of 36, seven to eight year olds. We're always conscious of how hard it has been for people to come to terms with what happened that day, said Hetty. We feel the loss of the children as well. 
There were five teachers and a school secretary who died there that day. It was such a happy school. This is her talking. The staff all got along really well and the children were lovely. I had come in with Michael Davis, a young teacher and a friend that morning. We had all been talking about a staff do at, my, at Bindles in Barry the day after. And then when it happened and the walls of my classroom were bulging and cracking, it all changed. Howell Williams, another teacher, helped me to get the children out. But while we were standing on the playground, I was asked to come and identify a body. They thought it might have been a senior school pupil because it was a young man wearing a blazer and flannels. But it was Michael Davis, the teacher. That relationship of teachers and students in impossible circumstances and the tributes that came in for, for Rennie Williams when, when she died in 2020 points to the bond formed by teachers and students in traumatic and impossible circumstances and our importance in creating a sense of normality for children, um, in restoring their sense of safety, in maintaining their sense of safety, like those teachers in the basements in dozens of schools across Aleppo trying to keep things going for children, like the teachers we've seen teaching in underground stations um, across Ukraine, little kindergarten age children gathered around them. Um, teachers everywhere in ways I can't imagine being that heroic and wonderful, keep things going for, for people, for families and for children. And testament to that bond came um, comes from a rather lovely story, again, about schools and teachers in impossible situations, but with a sort of happy reunion ending in this one. Now, I'm going to be reading from this um, journalist account. Um, he says Londonderry throughout rather than Derry. I'm just telling you I'm reading what's there. So this is Paul Duran, who works for BBC News Northern Ireland. And um, this particular school had been attacked by arson. And that caused him to remember his own time there during the early years of the troubles. Um, you never forget the day your primary school was almost blown up, he says. And you never forget the teacher either, Mrs Doherty, shouting for everyone to get under their desk. It was the early 1970s and Holy Child Primary School was on the front lines in Craig and Londonderry. It had been built at a natural focal point in the estate opposite a row of shops near the library and church, which in a peaceful society made perfect sense. But when things went wrong in the late 1960s, the school found itself in a war zone on the front line of regular riots. CS gas was often in the air as we ran around outside and bullet casings frequently littered the playground. The attack, which forced many under their desks, though, was the closest we came to any serious danger. I was like, the scale of how everything adjusts and moves slightly to the left really captured there in that line. There was CS gas in the playground when we played. We were picking up bullet casings and playing with them. But it was only really dangerous the time there was an explosion. Hmm. It turned out to be a mortar filled with little fired with little concern for anyone nearby, including several hundred children, and it hit a small building next door. I didn't get under the desk. I saw no point. The explosion had already happened and we were alive and I was in school, so I knew I was safe. That's a line to ponder, isn't it? I was in school, so I knew I was safe. Those children in Idlib province, whose classrooms were bombed deliberately, those children in Aleppo, whose classrooms were bombed deliberately. That's what we offer children. We tell them that it's safe. And we can't guarantee it in these circumstances. We have floor to ceiling windows, which gave us a great view outside. And it always happened outside, never in the school. In the school, we were children learning and playing just like Peter and Jane 
in the reading books. For most of us, the violence was just the way of things. We were used to it. In a lot of ways, it was fun and adventure. For some of our classmates, of course, it was more serious. Some people had lost members of their families or had relatives interned without trial or jailed. But I loved my primary school. I still do. It taught me things I will never forget. A love of learning, a love of reading, and the ability to sew with a needle and thread. So after 40 years, I met Miss Sheila Doherty again, the teacher, now Mrs. Sheila Higgins. There were so many things that we as children couldn't and shouldn't have known about. The various pressures those teachers were under, some of them just out of college and starting their first job at 21 or 22, basically teaching in a war zone. We talked about the day the mortar nearly hit the school. She talked about the fears the teachers had about the floor to ceiling windows, those same windows that gave us a great view out, but also made us vulnerable to stray rockets, bullets, bricks, or any other missile. She said that while the children would regularly pick up ammunition and bullet casings in the playground, that wasn't what worried her most. Her biggest fear was a laburnum tree in the grounds. She was worried that we might be poisoned if we ate the seeds. Sheila told me she taught a class of 42 children, some of them from really deprived families. Some were traumatized by their home life and by the troubles, but the teachers never got any help from outside agencies. No one told them how to deal with the circumstances they were facing every day. But these teachers created a bubble of calm and they did it very deliberately. They refused to close the school, even if they were pressured to by paramilitaries. The school principal just said no. There were evacuation plans in case of an emergency though. They were prepared, but always calm. And as for what went on in the staff room, apart from smoking, well, knitting seems to have been a big thing. Now, they met each other when he tweeted that he'd gone to school there. And uh, it's a lovely little Twitter engagement. There's, there's only like two likes on his, one on hers. But he tweeted, you know, that's my school. I remember it. And, uh, and she replied. And so he also here, I asked her how she suspected it was me who tweeted about the school, given that she'd not seen me in 40 years. And she said when she saw my picture on Twitter, she knew, adding, the child never goes. Right, I'm just checking that we have not gone down again because I've got a slight feeling that we might have done. Uh, uh, no, we're still going. Fantastic. All right. So those have been some distressing, upsetting, also heroic, uplifting stories in there. I particularly love this, just the idea of teaching staff just getting on with it because they have to. Um, again, I'm not sure I could do that. I'm not sure I would do that, but I hope reading all of these people that it's at least possible. Um, and I am going to end with the Titanic. Now, when I say end with, this is quite a long story. There were three teachers on the Titanic. Um, I'll go to two of them afterwards, so two female teachers and one male teacher. The male teacher, Mr. Lawrence Beasley, who was 34 years old um, in 1912 when the Titanic went down, was a second class passenger. The other two teachers, one was second class, one was third class. Um, he survived, they both died. So Mr. Beasley was interviewed quite extensively afterwards. I think he went on to work at um, Dolchester School for Boys. And he wrote a short book about it to, to correct people's impressions of various things. He's particularly not impressed with various um, hyper dramatic versions of, of being able to see the ship split in half and go down. And luckily for all of us and the historical record, he has a beautiful turn of phrase. 
So I'm going to read you some of this um, teacher's account of the Titanic going down. And I think you'll agree with me that he brings us there, as he says. So if the reader will come and stand with the crowd on deck, he must first rid himself entirely of the knowledge that the Titanic has sunk, an important necessity, for he cannot see conditions as they existed there through the mental haze arising from the knowledge of the greatest maritime tragedy the world has known. He must get rid of any foreknowledge of disaster to appreciate why people acted as they did. Secondly, he had better get rid of any picture and thought painted either by his own imagination or by some artist, whether pictorial or verbal, from information supplied. Some are most inaccurate, and where they err, err they err on the highly dramatic side. They need not have done so. The whole conditions were dramatic enough in all their bare simplicity without the addition of any high colouring. Having made these mental erasures, he will find himself as one of the crowd faced with the following conditions. A perfectly still atmosphere, a brilliantly beautiful starlight night, but no moon, and so with little light that was of any use, a ship that had come quietly to rest without any indication of disaster, no iceberg visible, no hole in the ship's side through which water was pouring in, nothing broken or out of place, no sound of alarm, no panic, no movement of anyone except at a walking pace, the absence of any knowledge of the nature of the accident, of the extent of the damage, of the danger of the ship sinking in a few hours, of the number of boats, rafts and other life-saving appliances available, their capacity and what other ships were near or coming to help. In fact, an almost complete absence of any positive knowledge on any point. I think this was the result of deliberate judgment on the part of the officers and perhaps particular he, the reader, must remember that the ship was a sixth of a mile long with passengers on three decks open to the sea and port and starboard sides to each deck. He will then get some idea of the difficulty presented to the officers of keeping control over such a large area and the impossibility of anyone knowing what was happening except in his own immediate vicinity. Perhaps the whole thing can be summed up best by saying that after we had embarked in the lifeboats and rowed away from the Titanic, it would not have surprised us all to hear that all the passengers would be saved. The cries of drowning people after the Titanic gave the final plunge were a thunderbolt to us. I am aware that the experiences of many of those saved differed in some respects from the above. Some had knowledge of certain things. Some were experienced travellers and sailors and therefore deduced more rapidly what was likely to happen. But I think the above gives a fairly accurate representation of the state of mind of most of those on deck that night. As we stood there, all this time, people were pouring up from the stairs and adding to the crowd. I remember at that moment thinking it would be well to return to my cabin and rescue some money and warmer clothing if we were to embark in boats. But looking through the vestibule windows and seeing people still coming upstairs, I decided it would only cause confusion passing them on the stairs and so I remained on the deck. I was now on the starboard side of the top boat deck. The time was about 12.20. We watched the crew at work on the light boats, some inside arranging the oars, some coiling ropes on the deck, the ropes which ran through the pulleys to lower to the sea, others with cranks fitted to the rocking arms of the davits. As we watched, the cranks were turning, the davits swung outwards until the boats hung clear of the edge of the deck. And just then, an officer came along from the first-class deck and shouted above the noise of the escaping steam, all women and children get down to the deck below and all men stand back from the boats. He'd apparently been off duty when the ship struck and was lightly dressed, 
with a white muffler twisted hastily around his neck. The men fell back and the women retired below to get into the boats from the next deck. Two women refused at first to leave their husbands, but partly by persuasion and partly by force, they were separated from them and sent down to the next deck. I think that by this time, the work on the lifeboats and the separation of men and women impressed on us slowly the presence of imminent danger, but it made no difference in the attitude of the crowd. They was just as prepared to obey orders and do what came next as when they first came on deck. But if there was anyone who had not by now realised that the ship was in danger, all doubt at this point was to be set at rest in a dramatic manner. Suddenly a rush of light from the forward deck, a hissing roar that made us all turn from watching the boats and a rocket leapt upwards to where the stars blinked and twinkled above us. Up it went, higher and higher, with a sea of faces upturned to watch it. And then an explosion that seemed to split the silent night in two and a shower of stars sank slowly down and went out one by one. And with a gasping sigh, one word escaped the lips of the crowd. Rockets. Anybody knows what rockets at sea mean. And presently another. And then a third. It's no use denying the dramatic intensity of the scene. Separate it if you can from all the terrible events that followed and picture the calmness of the night the sudden light on the decks crowded with people in different stages of dress and undress, the background of huge funnels and tapering masts revealed by the soaring rocket whose flash illuminated at the same time the faces and minds of the obedient crowd, the one with mere physical light, the other with a sudden revelation of what its message was. Everyone knew without being told that we were calling for help from anyone who was near enough to see. And soon after the men had left the starboard side, I saw a bandsman, the cellist, come round the vestibule corner from the staircase entrance and run down the now deserted starboard deck, his cello training behind him, the spike dragging along the floor. This must have been about 12.40 a.m. I suppose the band might have begun to play soon after this and gone on until after 2 a.m. Many brave things were done that night, but none more brave than by these few men playing minute after minute as the ship settled quietly lower and lower in the sea and the sea rose higher and higher to where they stood. The music they played serving alike as their own immortal requiem and their right to be recorded on the rolls of undying fame. Watching the ship sink from a lifeboat. I'll just skip forward to that moment. And again, if you're just joining us, this is um, a school teacher at um, just a private school, 1912. He's gone on a trip. He had to take, um, he had to resign from work to take a holiday to go to America. So he had resigned from work, gone on this holiday, and this is what's happened. And thankfully for all of us, um, he writes beautifully. And so we have this utterly compelling account of the Titanic from a teacher who finds himself, like all the teachers we've talked about today, in impossible circumstances. So they're in the lifeboat, the, the ship is some distance from them, and here's the description. At about 2.15 a.m., I think, we were any distance from a mile to two miles away. It's difficult for a landsman to calculate distance at sea, but we've been afloat an hour and a half. The boat was heavily loaded, the oarsmen unskilled, and our course erratic. Following now one light and now another, sometimes a star and sometimes a light from the port lifeboat, which had turned away from the Titanic in the opposite direction and lay almost on our horizon, and so we could not have gone very far away. About this time, the water had crept up almost to her sidelight and the captain's bridge, and it seemed a question only of minutes before she sank. The oarsmen lay on their oars, 
and all in the lifeboat were motionless as we watched her in absolute silence, save some who would not look and buried their heads on each other's shoulders. The lights still shone with the same brilliance, but not so many of them. Many were now below the surface. I have often wondered since whether they continued to light up the cabins when the portholes were underwater. They may have done so. And then, as we gazed awestruck, she tilted slowly up, revolving apparently about a centre of gravity just astern of her midships until she attained a vertically upright position. And there she remained, motionless. As she swung up, her lights, which had shone without a flicker all night, went out suddenly, came on again for a single flash, then went out altogether. And as they did so, there came a noise which many people, wrongly I think, have described as an explosion. It has always seemed to me that it was nothing but the engines and the machinery coming loose from their bolts and bearings and falling through the compartments, smashing everything in their way. It was partly a roar, partly a groan, partly a rattle and partly a smash. And it was not a sudden roar as an explosion would be. It went on successively for some seconds, possibly 15 to 20, as the heavy machinery dropped down to the bottom, now the bows of the ship. I suppose it fell through the end and sank first before the ship, but it was a noise no one had heard before and no one wishes to hear again. It was stupefying, stupendous as it came to us along the water. It was as if all the heavy things one could think of had been thrown downstairs from the top of a house, smashing into each other and the stairs and everything in the way. And when the noise was over, the Titanic was still upright like a column. We could see her now only as the stern and some 150 feet of her stood outlined against the star-specked sky, looming black in the darkness. And in this position, she continued for some minutes. I think as much as five minutes, but it may have been less. Then, first sinking back a little at the stern, I thought, she slid slowly forwards through the water and dived slantingly down. The sea closed over her, and we had seen the last of the beautiful ship on which we had embarked four days before at Southampton. He went on to have a full teaching career and family, but the two other teachers on board, the two female teachers who died, um, Miss Mary Emma Corey, who was 32, she's a married teacher, American, second class passenger, and then possibly the most heartbreaking, Miss Hannah Norton. Um, yes, I'm going to mention that chap there. I'm going to mention that in a second. Uh, and then Miss Hannah Norton, who was 21. Now she was um, Irish Catholic, uh, quite a poor family they had scraped money together and sent her to private school to train to be a teacher um, and then she was traveling to new york where she was going to take up a position in the kind of one-room schoolhouse teaching thing that that my female ancestors did my great great grandmother and such were one-room schoolhouse teachers she did not make it at all she was a third class passenger um she didn't get out uh, she was one of, this is uh, the sort of tribute to her on one of those those ancestry type things. She was one of eight children born to John and Ellen Norton, their only surviving daughter. Um, she'd attended expensive boarding school, faraway Crosshaven Convent. She'd earned a certificate of merit in geography, English and arithmetic. Two of her brothers had already left Ireland for America, but her parents believed that she would want to stay. And then she perished in the sinking of the Titanic at the age of 21. Her father died within three months of her death. So um, that chap there is pointing out um, the teacher at the Besland school siege who repeatedly removed explosive vests from the children until he was shot and the teacher at Dunblane. Yes. 
so because um i only had an hour today i have not included them but the teacher at dunblane yeah i am um, i was in aberdeen in in graduate school shortly after that happened and and the entire nation was still very much traumatized um impossible circumstances impossible bravery imp choices that i can't imagine making from teachers around the world teachers in this country teachers in syria teachers in ukraine right now managing to make lives better for people around them um putting their lives on the line to teach reading writing history and as the ukrainian teacher that we started with let me go back to her so i don't get her name wrong as the ukrainian teacher we started with elena carillo says um we studied history we never thought that this would happen on our land they never thought there'd be history and yet teachers become history and sometimes make it all right thank you very much everyone for listening during rather a shaky tech episode i will be back next week when i'm going to be interviewing um the only teacher i think i've ever met online who was actually cancelled for free speech um you'll hear all about it next week and and in the meantime i'm just going to take us out and uh yeah after that i think i'm going to go have a moment of silent reflection about the choices these people these heroic tragic wonderful really just normal people normal teachers have made you've been listening to teachers talk radio Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.